Welcome to the Mind Medicine Australia podcast, where we explore breakthrough innovations for mental illness. I'm Tommy Moore, host of this podcast, Mind Medicine Australia, which is a charity that is committed to helping alleviate the suffering caused by mental illness through expanding the treatment options available to medical practitioners and their patients. We are supporting the development of psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy programs within Australia, are providing educational material and events, therapist training, ethical and legal guidelines, and supporting clinical research. In furtherance of this mission, the Mind Medicine Australia podcast aims to facilitate engagement between clinicians, researchers, mental health practitioners, and other leaders in psychedelic-assisted therapies to provide expert opinion, share research results, and ultimately to help educate the public about potential new opportunities in patient treatment. If you wish to support our mission, there are a number of ways that you can do this. You can join local chapter groups and be amongst the discussion, keep up to date with relevant information and also help to share this information within your community. You can share this podcast, leave a five-star review and provide any comments or questions that you have. That really helps. And these are, of course, zero-cost ways and simple ways that you can support the development of psychedelic-assisted therapies within Australia and also around the world. If you wish to be of financial assistance, you can donate directly to mindmedicineaustralia.org. I've also been asked by a number of people that they can support me and the podcast financially. So in response to that, I have created a Patreon account where you can support me in creating this content by donating a few dollars per month. could be $5 or $10 whatever feels right for you. Check out the show notes for all the links and thank you for your support and interest in this emerging space. In this episode, I chat with Adam Ghazali. Adam Ghazali obtained a medical degree and a PhD in neuroscience at Mount Sinai School of Medicine in New York. He completed a neurology residency at the University of Pennsylvania and postdoctoral training in cognitive neuroscience at University of California, Berkeley. He's now the David Dolby Distinguished Professor in Neurology, Physiology and Psychiatry at the University of California, San Francisco or UCSF and the founder and executive director of Neuroscape, which is a translational neuroscience center engaged in technology creation and scientific research. Adam designs and develops novel brain assessment and optimization tools to impact education, wellness and medicine practices. This novel approach involves the development of custom-designed closed-loop uh, video games integrated with the latest advancements in software, things like computer brain interfaces, GPU computing, cloud-based analytics, and hardware, things like virtual or, or augmented reality, motion capture, mobile physiological recording devices, transcranial electrical brain stimulation, and so on. These technologies are then advanced to rigorous research studies that are that then evaluate their impact on multiple aspects of brain function and physiology. This utilizes a powerful combination of neurophysiological tools, including functional magnetic resonance imaging, fMRI, electroencephalography, EEG, and transcranial magnetic stimulation, or TMS. Adam is also the author of The Distracted Mind, Ancient Brains in a High-Tech World, which is a book explaining why our brains aren't built for media multitasking and how we can learn to live with technology in a more balanced way. So all in all, 
Adam Ghazali is a neuroscientist, neurologist, inventor, author, photographer, entrepreneur, and investor. So what do we chat about? Adam and I spoke about humans as information-seeking creatures and how technology has, has challenged our brain in how we use and spend our attention. And in reference to attention, we, we chat about what bottom-up versus top-down attention means and how top-down attention is what distinguishes humans from many other animals and, and species around the world. We chat about advancing psychedelic research as Adam and his team at Neuroscope have recently opened a new center for psychedelic research and what their research looks like for them. They've famously lured in Roland Carhart-Harris from Imperial College London. So he's now moved to UCSF in California. And so they're really focused on bridging between the molecular and neurophysiological mechanisms of psychedelics and to link that to clinical outcomes. So they're trying to bridge the gap. So we're starting to understand how psychedelics are impacting our brain and body on a molecular level. So what chemical changes are happening, what are happening to neurotransmitters, what are happening to different areas of our brain. And we're now trying to link that to why that results in positive clinical outcomes. We then go into the discussion of neuroplasticity the different types of plasticity being experience-dependent plasticity and also self-directed plasticity and ways that we can leverage plasticity in producing positive clinical outcomes, whether that be for common mental disorders. But there's also new potential in psychedelics for treating neurodegenerative diseases. So that's a really interesting discussion. I'll leave it at that. So please enjoy this conversation that I had with Adam Ghazali. Adam, it's honestly uh, a real pleasure to be able to connect with you and, and get in contact with you. You've been involved in so many different breakthrough neuroscientific and technological initiatives and projects and research. So perhaps to start off, to those that may be unfamiliar with your work, how would you describe what you do? Well, I would say... Um... It's complicated. <laughs> um, my, my, you know, my, my training is, is sort of traditional uh, medical neuroscience uh, pathway. So I'm an MD, PhD trained as both a, a, my PhD is in neuroscience and my clinical work is in neurology, where I primarily focused on conditions of aging and cognition. And thus a big uh, um, aspect of my clinical work was Alzheimer's disease and dementia related conditions. Uh, but over the last decade, uh, my research has migrated from a focus on understanding neural networks involved in attention systems, which is where my research has, has really lied in, in the domain of cognitive neuroscience, to trying to use the tools of neuroscience and the insights that we've gained over the years in understanding how attention operates to design and then validate approaches that can be used to improve attention abilities in people. And we have largely up until recently, which we, I'm sure we'll talk about here, given the context of, of this podcast, but largely have focused on how do we improve attention through experience, but those experiences have been delivered through technology, interactive media and video games. 
Awesome. Yeah, I'm, I'm super keen to unpack your mind and extract as much wisdom and, and information from you as possible. And it's funny that I say that because we don't have unlimited capacity to process information. You had a hypothesis in your book, um, The Distracted Mind, that we are foraging for information in much the same way as animals are foraging for food. As information-seeking creatures, what, uh, how would you describe our relationship to information now given the current landscape of information technology. Yeah, that book, uh, which was really sort of the culmination of my 15 years of research on attention and aging, uh, was really meant to present a evolutionary perspective on how technology has challenged our brain in a very fundamental way. Uh, the subtitle, Ancient Brains in a High-Tech World, is, is really what was exciting to me about writing the book uh, along with, with my co-author, Larry Rosen, uh, because there's been so much written about distraction. And, and in, some, in you know, some ways of looking at it, we, we, we know a ton about how susceptible we are to interference from information around us. And why I felt we could contribute something unique in the book was by thinking about it from a neuroscience perspective and what our brains are have evolved to do quite effectively and where they struggle. And one of the aspects of the ancient brain, not the only one, but one aspect of the ancient brain in the high-tech world that we spent a lot of time in the book talking about is how we, as you just described, how we forage for information uh, in a way that other animals are foraging for food for survival. And there's some data to suggest that rewards alone drive um, information information seeking behavior in primates and laboratory experiments using pretty classic dopamine reward pathways. And the extrapolation to humans in the modern technology rich world is that with so much access to technology to, to information, um, you know, it's in our pockets. It's, you know, not just consuming previously written information, but it's live ongoing dynamic exchanges with people from around the world, another very rich social source of information, it's, uh, it's hard for us to not consume it all the time. <laughs> and probably all your listeners are you know familiar with that, not just from reading the many um, accounts of it from you know the scientific literature, but from their own experiences with technology, the, the allure of consuming information is very powerful. And it's compounded by the sort of habits that can form around that type of behavior. When you allow yourself to engage in it, every time your mind has the opportunity to take a break, and you don't pursue that break, but you dive into the black mirror, um, you, uh, you are reinforcing those behaviors that make it so much easier to just keep doing again and again and again. And then you have all the consequences that that leads to. Yeah, certainly. I feel like it's all involved with our, a sense of time as well, because we want to feel like we can do all the things. Um, and then we're driven by stress and anxiety and not always in a bad or debilitating way. And considering stress is a generic system in our body, but certainly with that sense of urgency. So I know the interplay between, I guess, bottom up and top down processing will uh, interrelate with, I guess, the psychedelic experience and how, and how that relates to that. So perhaps we can, can start there. So let's give a, a bit of a well-rounded view of what 
top down and bottom up processing is and what the psychedelic experience, what, what that looks like in terms of, of those two mechanisms. Yeah, that's a, a great connection between what the work that I do uh, in terms of uh, digitally delivered experiential medicine and what I now uh, perceive as molecularly initiated experiential medicine, which is what I think of as psychedelics. So that's the connecting point, the bridge in my mind between uh, a scientist and a technologist like myself and my my lab, on all the folks on my team, why we would start engaging in psychedelic research, which is, I guess, the, the prelude to, to some of this conversation. And one of the more conceptual um, bridges that are worth forming, which you were alluding to between um, attention and psychedelics is on the dichotomy of top-down and bottom-up processing or top-down and bottom-up attention. And what that, you know, just to give a definition so we could be really concrete about it, we have multiple ways of attending to the world around us. Attention is an incredibly, you know, at the same time, obvious uh, aspect of our, our lives that we feel and, 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 and are aware of all the time. But it's also incredibly complicated when you break down the neuroscience and the behaviors and also the, the conditions that are impaired by attentional deficits. But one aspect of attention that has really caught my imagination, and I talk about all the time in the book and on many podcasts and, and, and presentations that I give, is the dichotomy between bottom-up and top-down attention. So to break that down, bottom-up attention is the more ancient attention. It's, it's the ones that you see in every other animal, uh, and including humans, but you see it strong, more strongly in other animals, and it, it guides their behavior in a more uh, a, a dominant manner. And what that attention is, is how uh, resources, so the first rule of this is that our capacities are limited. We do not have the ability, no animal, of distributing their uh, focus infinitely. And therefore, decisions have to be made about what is the focus of attention, what is going to get the dominant processing uh, power at any single moment. And the bottom-up attention is that decision essentially is not made by you. It's made by the stimuli themselves. And so that, you could see it's... Um, its importance in survival is that stimuli in the environment that are very, very salient or very novel are going to demand attention of an animal independent of their of whatever goals they may have. And so a flash of light, a loud sound are obvious ones, vibrations, uh, your name being called is, is another one that may be a little higher level, but still bottom up. You respond to it reflexively. And that's an important point from the neuroscientific um, uh, underpinnings of this, is that these are reflexive perception action cycles. Uh, you, you smell, you're a creature in a forest, you smell the scent of a predator, you're already responding before uh, you know there, there could be any other processing steps in the way. It just happens reflexively, and that's what leads to great survival. And that's bottom up. And we still have a lot of that. And from the technology perspective, uh, you you could see us being influenced by notifications, and you know that's all taking advantage of the fact that we preserve bottom-up processing and bottom-up attention. Top-down is the more human, more evolved aspect of attention, and that is the goal-directed attention. It's how you make a decision about what is relevant or irrelevant to you in the moment, 
and then you either upregulate or downregulate processing depending upon that relevance. Uh, it is how us, you know, how we as humans have created civilization and technology and music and art and all of the language, all of the complex things that we do require us to decouple from the environment in some way and not just be slaves to it reflexively responding to everything we see and hear. So in some ways, it's the pinnacle of being human is our top-down attention. But it is, it is always, I wouldn't say in conflict, but it's always um, you know, in some relationship, some push-pull relationship with bottom-up attention. And if you start paying attention to your own interactions in the world around you, you can essentially start dissecting these different influences. You'll be top-down engaged, like your listeners hopefully are right now, but you know, there might be uh, a cry of your child in the next room since many of us are home because of COVID, which is my situation. And <laughs> regardless of how much you're paying attention, how interested you are, your attention gets pulled away. That is the bottom up, top down pull. And another way of thinking about it, it is, and this is, you know, a good segue over to psychedelics discussion, is it's often uh, thought about as the, the internal based attention and externally uh, driven attention. And so top-down can be external to the world around you, but it can also be internal to your thoughts and emotions and your body sensations. Uh, as, and then the bottom-up attention is very externally driven by the stimuli themselves. So once you, once you start thinking about attention in this way, it raises a host of interesting questions to what types of attention are influenced by you know, experiences that can be tailored to uh, these type of systems. For example, meditation, uh, lots of research and thought processes about how that changes their relationship between top-down and bottom-up attention. And a lot of the mechanistic discussions of psychedelics, uh, especially in the human-based research, start revolving around attention to self versus attention to the environment. And then that you know, leads over to discussions about what does this concept of ego dissolution, which is prominent in many, many psychedelic experiences and thought to be associated with some of the uh, benefits, what does that mean in terms of attentional systems? So that's a, a little teaser on a very complicated topic. Yeah, and I'm sure your, your research uh, within Euroscape and, and at UCSF will expand on that a lot further. And I mean, the current bandwidth of psychedelic research has explored the neurobiological basis and pharmacology of psychedelics. And now, of course, how they can have beneficial effects across a wide range of clinical conditions. But what we don't know about psychedelics still far exceeds what we do know. But one thing is certain is that their effectiveness in treating a wide range of clinical conditions can no longer be ignored. But considering we are still playing catch up in psychedelic research with the prohibition of drugs in a research setting, from my perspective, and I'm sure you're on board here, there is a lot of research to advance our understanding behind the positive effects of psychedelics on the brain and our behavior. And you've famously lured Robin Carhart Harris from Imperial College uh, to UCSF. So what does the research look like for you, Robin, and, and the team at Neuroscape in, in the coming years? Yeah, that's a, a great discussion. Uh, it's obviously a dynamic discussion since we're planning. Now, Robin officially joined us in July. 
uh, we're super excited about that and him and his family will be out here in California pretty soon. The, um, you know, the thing that really connected Robin and I together from an intellectual point of, of view was the role of context and experience in outcomes. And it, it, we're, you know, equally excited about the clinical benefits and equally um, fascinated by the underlying molecular uh, effects. But what we don't can't shut up about if we're if we're together talking about it is you know the the richer lands research landscape that we see that is largely uncharted in bridging between the basic molecular and neurophysiological mechanisms to clinical outcome. So that that bridge, we use that word I've used several times today because that's what most interests me are, are the bridges. And, you know, we, we have and still continue to have, I just read an amazing paper in Neuron on single dose psilocybin in mice and plasticity of spines and its endure, you know, endurance and amazing. So that, that's an example of the basic work in vivo and in vitro work to understand what are the pro-plasticity effects and receptor binding, all of that. And then uh, obviously there were, there's been some really exciting papers, like another, another researcher in Neuroscape, a, a new faculty member, uh, Jennifer, Mitchell was the first author on the MAPS-funded uh, MDMA for the treatment of severe PTSD study published in Nature Medicine. And there you see these amazing clinical outcomes in conditions that have been otherwise um, poorly treated. So those are the two sides, right? So how do we get from our growing understanding about the molecular and neurophysiological underpinnings of these compounds to the remarkable clinical outcomes that we're seeing in phase two and phase three trials, how do we make that connection richer and more personalized and more precisely targeted? That's what we're interested in. You know, and there is, uh, you know, we, I always joke that we're not going to live long enough to see all of these details filled in because there is so many experiments that need to be done to help us get there, to bridge that together. And it involves all of the elements that occur before a treatment related to the person's uh, baseline, their the traumas they might have had, their intentions of, of approaching a treatment, how they direct their attention, either successfully or non-successfully, and then what occurs during the treatment, which is the initial area of investigation for us, the, what's known as the, the setting, and then all of the processing and integration that needs to occur after to lead to those changes to be enduring and meaningful in their lives. Across all of those areas, there is, you know, a, an incredible amount of, of research that has not been done, and that is where we're devoting our attention. Yeah, perfect. And yeah, you've raised uh, some some really good points in terms of, you know, when when we are uncovering our understanding of psychedelics, we're often explaining, you know, certain brain networks that are turning off or turning on, or explaining neuroplasticity or explaining functional connectivity. And then I'm often cautioned in explaining the psychedelic experience from the perspective of neurobiology. And Aldous Huxley had famously said, reducing activity in the brain expands the mind. So as a neuroscientist, what is your philosophy of the relationship 
between the brain and the mind? Well, my, my view is that the brain is a, is a function of the mind. Um, well, excuse me, the, the mind is a function of the brain, that it, it is, a, you know, just like our brain also generates movement and generates perceptions, it also generates the mind, which is a higher way, you know, higher level way of describing cognition and in all its intricacies. Uh, I view the mind as the, as I said, the functional product of the brain, but it doesn't take place in a vacuum. And it takes place at the intersection with the world around us. So, some, you know, from some perspectives, the, I, would, I would say that the mind essentially emerges, emerges out of the bottom-up, top-down interaction. That a, a brain in a, in a jar that has not been given, you know, as a thought experiment, that has not been given exposure to the environment around us doesn't really develop the mind, at least the mind as we know. And I'm almost using the term here, mind, uh, synonymously with consciousness. Uh, but in the same way, if you are just fully reflexive to the environment, such that everything you hear, see, smell, or feel leads to a, re a reflexive response, you also don't have the human mind in the way that, that we're thinking about it. But somewhere in the interface of those two, the mind is an emergent property of the brain. And that, that's what really excites me about this particular work and my, where I am in my career as a neuroscientist in that now the tools to make accessible that emergence of mind is now available to us. And that's really, really exciting. And it's not just the, the physiological tools, it's the conceptual underpinnings of how the brain and mind work. It is the, you know, the advanced biosensor technology that allows us to, to record these signals, the signal processing that allows us to um, rapidly interpret them, and then machine learning approaches that allows us to you know, reach further and to, and to make composite measures of multiple uh, complex signals as they unfold over time. So when you're thinking about how do we create new treatments for people either using experiences delivered in a video game or even understanding real world meditation or understanding the mechanisms of psychedelics and how we optimize them. It's, to me, it's all a discussion about the mind and how the brain yields the mind, how we can understand that so that we can help optimize it and make it personalized. Yeah, perfect. And you know, in terms of things like meditation and our ability to harness and control our attention kind of is mindfulness as it's, as it's widely called in that we have the capacity to kind of almost funnel our attention to particular areas. And so I guess this is really important in terms of a therapeutic setting in that we're really directing our attention to certain aspects of our biology or our behavior that we want to change. And in terms of change, uh, I'd like to raise um, or, or discuss neuroplasticity. Um, I'm sure most neuroscientists will agree that our brain is a, a map of experience and that plasticity of our brain or the ability of our brain to change and adapt from experience can occur across the lifespan for, for better or for worse. And as our brain develops to our mid twenties, plasticity can occur through I mean, sensory experience, but after our brain has been quote unquote, fully developed, 
we require more intense focus and alertness to, to access plasticity. And considering that one of the main uh, therapeutic mechanisms in, in psychedelic therapy is neuroplasticity, can you give a, a well-rounded definition of neuroplasticity and why accessing this is critical in, in breaking free from rigid thinking that is often associated with mental illness? Sure, that was that was well said, and and many of the points I'm going to make, you you really just said. I could repeat them back and give maybe a little bit more detail on on neuroplasticity uh, from a mechanistic point of view. So, what what how I define it, if someone says just you know quick in one two sentences, what is neuroplasticity? It's the ability of our brains, of all brains, uh, to modify um, themselves at every level, and we've seen this structure, the chemistry, physiology, other functional measures like oscillatory communication, on and on. Pretty much every tool that we have to quantify the brain, like counting synapses and looking at spine density and looking at NMDA receptor uh, induced physiological changes and looking at MRI of large, you know, MRI structural uh, volumes of large reasons, regions or looking at EEG oscillatory coherence patterns. Like what I just described was like a whole set of measurements across different species and different levels of resolution, some structural, some physiological, they all change in response to experience, which is what makes this field so wonderful and yet also so complicated is that the change occurs on every level of recording. And it doesn't only re re uh, occur in response to experience. That is um, a well-described type of plasticity called experience-dependent plasticity. And there is an incredible incredible amount of data on what's occurring down to the single synapse. Um, and, and Nobel Prizes have been handed out on characterizing all of those molecular uh, and, and enduring changes that occur that lead to plastic responses in the brain. Um, but we, you know, as, as I was describing, we, we see it at, at, at every level and not just in response to experience, but also in response to injury. So it is, it is how our brain compensates to repair from injury. So there is, uh, you know, if you put plasticity in uh, Google Scholar or PubMed, uh, you know, you'll spend the, the, probably the rest of your life reading the articles. It's, it's one of the richest areas of research in neuroscience. And it deserves it because it is, you know, the core function of the brain is to change. And as you alluded to, it occurs throughout our lifespan. And now the robustness of plasticity does seem to shift and decline with age, but it is still there. It's still accessible to us. And a lot of the research I've done over 30 years that I've been doing neuroscience from when I was a grad student was looking at plasticity in the aging brain. So the, the, the fact is that our brain can, the human brain, just focusing on that for a moment, can modify itself at every level of that we can investigate it to lead to changes in its function that thus that then corresponds to changes in our cognition as recorded in laboratories and changes in our real world behavior and that is the potential to me that opens up an entire area of research into new therapeutics for people suffering 
um, impairments of cognition and mood on and on that we have not uh, investigated to the degree that we should have. Yeah, absolutely. You mentioned um, experience dependent plasticity. Would that be, I guess, kind of related to bottom up type processing in, in that sense? And then something like self-directed plasticity would be more basic top down processing. Is that how that would work? Well, it, it's hard to dissect them so completely from each mm -hmm. other. Experience-dependent plasticity could also be very top-down experiences as well. Right. Um, but but it's true. A lot of the experiments, certainly in animal models that are done to understand the basis of experience plasticity, could sometimes even happen with a non-conscious animal. Just exposure to sensory stimuli can lead to plastic responses. And as I said, it doesn't it doesn't have to be experience. It could be damage that leads to the responses, and molecularly they could be very similar. Uh, but you know, when I think about experiences as guiding plastic changes. That is not um, in any way, from my perspective, saying bottom up versus top down. And there's usually a combination of the two. For a, an awake behaving human being, they're both going on all the time and they're very hard to dissect from each other. Some may be more dominated by bottom up or top down, but they're, uh, they're both occurring and they're dynamic over time, they're shifting. So that's the, uh, you know, the opportunity from you know, what, what we do is we design experiences as therapeutics and we deliver them through video games, not because there's something magic about video games, it's but because they're a really fun, uh, engaging, interactive experience that people immerse themselves in. And thus, uh, the hypothesis that we're showing now is that if you engage in an experience in a deeper way and you engage in it more times, have better compliance, then the outcomes are, are greater, which is not so much of a surprise. It's a pretty logical um, extrapolation of even things we learned from physical fitness and your engagement and how you improve your cardiovascular health and your aerobic abilities. So that's, um, that's the sort of driving force is how do we shape experience to maximally harness the inherent plasticities that our brains have to lead to a particular outcome? And it's important to emphasize that because there's no like morality here. Like your brain is not driven to any good plasticity or bad plasticity. It optimizes function in response to a stimulus. And that's part of what makes it, you know, the, the as I would say, the devil's in the details. Not, not all experiences are going to lead to the same outcome. And, and experience design is incredibly important when you think about, especially the therapeutic potentials. A lot of people seem to get a little bit carried away by neuroplasticity, especially with in regards to things like nootropics. It's becoming so popular and people are like, oh, accessing neuroplasticity through this or through that. But yeah, like, like you were saying, it's not always a, a, a good or, or bad thing. It's just that it is constantly evolving and adapting. So I'm really interested in, in some of the research that you, you're planning within Neuroscape and one how that research is being conducted um, through the technology and through through some of your technology. Um, and so coming coming back to plasticity again and how you're going to to measure this, because I mean there are the the experience dependent plasticity and also self-directed plasticity through a psychedelic experience, it's often reported that there's this loss of self. So it's quite interesting to see or or discuss how psychedelics are improving 
our mental health when it's not always directed to, towards it. If, if I'm making sense here at all, if I'm just, I'm just rambling on. No, I understand what you're saying. And, and I, and I know why you're struggling and, and it's not your fault There's there is a lack of clarity on how these elements of the psychedelic experience that are quite uh, powerful uh, um, to any individual having one of these, you know, experiences, how it relates to therapeutic outcomes like helping with depression or addiction, end of life treatment, PTSD, the, the, the areas where, you know, incredible clinical benefit has been, uh, you know, shown. And that is essentially the the things that's driving us to do all of our, of our research. If if it was so clear, we'd have a lot less to do. Uh, so so maybe let's just like pause on a couple of things you said and and um, dissect them a bit. There is uh, already, with, without being explicit about it, we talked about two very powerful neural events that occur with, let's just keep this conversation in the classic psychedelics, uh, the 5-HT2A receptor agonist. So the LSD, mescaline, psilocybin, DMT world, those, those compounds. Uh, one is the plasticity inducing effects, which we've seen on, in multiple types of very different studies looking at uh, markers of plasticity so that the plastic response that occurs all the time may be heightened. That's, I see the general view of where we're landing with that. Lots of work to be done, but let's just say that that's, that's one aspect of it. So the, 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 the experience dependent plasticity that occurs while a psychedelic is on board is presumably by the, what the data showing now is heightened. So again, it doesn't mean the outcome's going to be good or bad, but it's going to be bigger than it was if it wasn't there, which is both an opportunity and a challenge, right? And we've seen the challenges throughout history, even not distant history of what an uncontrolled experience could look like. It could end pretty bad uh, because of heightened plasticity. And then the other aspect that's not subtle about a psychedelic, if it was just in plasticity-inducing might not be as complicated, but it's also, you know, quite cognitive altering as well. <laughs> and, and at many different levels, uh, attention, perception, perception to senses, perception to time, perception to self, uh, all of that is incredibly pronounced, especially at higher doses. And the relationship between that and the plasticity inducing uh, aspects are unclear. Even still, you know, papers I've read in the last week are still arguing about, we're not arguing, but, but basically proposing that they're dissociable, that plasticity effects could be there without cognitive and perceptual alterations. And so there's a lot of work to be done to put together the role of those two prominent aspects of a psychedelic experience or the psychedelic treatment and what it means and how they work together uh, optimally, I would say is a, is a great question. On the cognitive side, I think it's the, the general thought process that, that I'm understanding. And again, I, I, you know, I should have made clear at the beginning, this is a new area of research for me, psychedelics, which is why I'm teaming up with people like Jenny and, and Robin uh, to do this work. What I bring to this is all the, the neuroscience background that I have and working with experiences leading to positive impact that don't involve psychedelics. So a lot of the same methodology that we'd apply here. 
But you can imagine that if you have very well-tread patterns and habits that you formed that could be pathological to your engagement in the world, such as what we see prominently in things like depression and PTSD and OCD and other addictive behaviors. And now you have ingested something that causes your entire perceptual framework to melt, in essence, to all of the top-down, bottom-up structure that normally exists as you engage in the world are now shifted, right? The deck is fully shuffled. And you have a window of opportunity to perceive things in an incredibly different way than you had before. And while that's occurring, plasticity is higher. <laughs> and so the, the, the aspects of change that might occur during these experiences are greater. That is my, you know, my general takeaway from uh, reading the scientific literature and combining it with my previous work on what's leading to the outcomes. And there's still a lot of black box going on there, right? A lot of hand waving, even trying to be as precise as I can right now. I feel all of those weak points, which are great. To me, they're all research experiments. But what does it mean for the self to dissolve? And how does that occur in such a manner that it allows the formulation of networks that allow that that lead to you know, improved well-being afterwards. And so another way of saying that is how, how do the peak experiences, which is a term that's used in the field, mystical experiences, these really transformative events. So how do, how do these peak events that occur during the treatment then lead to enduring neural network changes that result in positive outcomes, like maybe better well-being in someone that didn't have a condition, a pathological state, or bringing someone from a, a state of major depression, you know, to back to some healthy baseline. That transformation, as far as I am concerned, is unknown. And, and with our ability to better appreciate that, we have the opportunity to guide the experience in such a way that it leads to that outcome more likely to happen. Yeah, certainly. And yeah, in, in the psychedelic experience, obviously, the psychology or the psychological phenomena is, you know, well discussed in terms of what that feeling is. But it's yeah, it's that link between the psychological phenomena and giving a, a neurological basis for the experience is, is what's exciting about the research that, the, that you're planning to conduct. And I guess there's always going to be limitations into how much we can leverage our understanding of the brain and, and leverage technology to give that basis for the experience. So I'm interested in, in how you're, you're using these technologies to observe the brain, because that, that's obviously a lot of the work that you've been doing is, is inventing and creating ways to uncover different parts and aspects of our brain and, and how that relates to, to our behavior. So do you want to speak to, to that and, and how you're going to be conducting this research and under, underpinning this. Yeah. Um, so e even before we started our, our journey into psychedelic research at Neuroscape, a main and recent focus is has been a program that I call a multimodal biosensing. MMBS is our internal name for it. 
And it's, it's, it's built on the hypothesis that I have and feel very strongly about that no single methodology is going to give us the answer here, that the brain is way too complex. There is no perfect window into it. There's just different ways of viewing it. And none of them are wrong, but none of them are right, really, either. Certainly not alone. And so if you take that view, um, you know, and I've, you know, across my whole neuroscientific life, I've published with, I'm going to guess like 12 different methodologies from microscopic and in situ hybridization to EG and fMRI and MRI and on and on. And the reason why is not because I'm, I'm fickle uh, and, and just, you know, want to use more tools. Uh, it's because every time I use one, I see the limitations in what it's telling us. And Sometimes you just, you can't make the tool any better. It tells you what it tells you. And so for me, you, you, you reach for a different tool to answer a different aspect of the question. And so now we're at the point where my goal is and the challenge that I, I created to my team at Neuroscape is let's just stop thinking about understanding the brain with a single approach, whether it be fMRI or EG or any of the many other tools that we have. How about if we only approach this for, for the, the context of this discussion and, and, and the work that we're planning on doing in psychedelics as a multimodal problem? And with that in mind, what are the tools that we would couple together, a simultaneous multimodal recording? And how can we process that information as rapidly as we can so that we have real-time data and how do we integrate those signals such that we get a composite measure that tells us more than all the parts that go into it? That's a, that's a pretty big challenge. Um, and no one has done it at all um, at, at that level, including us, no one. And I, I know why, because it is a multidisciplinary challenge. So what we've been doing is compiling a team of experts uh, you know, our, our core competencies are already there in neuroscience and neurology and psychiatry and psychology, and we have chops in neuroimaging, but now bringing in experts in biosensor technology, signal processing, and machine learning. And what the hope is that by recording in as rich a way as possible, as technology will allow us to across all these different modalities. So one of the first, what we call the dream systems that we have is high density EEG with uh, facial expression and body posture monitoring through EMG, heart rate, and also some other technologies like Trev and BP looking at autonomic responses, as well as galvanic skin recordings, electrodermal activity, um, looking at experience sampling through the different ways that someone could subjectively, as best they can, account what's going on with them. And then, of course, other approaches like eye tracking and pupillometry, on and on, all of these uh, recording modalities on a single person going through an experience and then bringing on the, the, the latest and greatest in signal processing and machine learning to make an interpretable real-time experience landscape is how I think about it, about what, what is happening to an individual over time. That's, that's our goal. And we've been doing that minus the psychedelics because there's enough to do before psychedelics are on board. And, but once we, we have that, and we don't have all those answers, but we, we have the system set up, we have a great team uh, brought together, 
and we are starting those studies now um, in the context of music and meditation, which are also aspects of the psychedelic treatment. So many of the elements of, of what we speculate goes into a positive therapeutic experience, we can study right now, minus the psychedelics, because we still don't understand those even without um, these compounds on board. And so that's that's really what's, what we're doing. And the last thing I want to say is that there are things that you could do inside an MRI scanner and things that are really challenging to do. And I've done a lot of both in and out of scanner physiological recordings. And so we, instead of just trying to go through the impossible challenge of getting everything in the MRI scanner, we, we often bring our participants back for two sessions and, and do the deep dive in the scanner and the deep dive out of the scanner and then relate them as best as possible. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, essentially it's using all of these different types of technologies and, and biometric markers to then get more of a, a cohesive uh, overview of what the psychedelics experience is doing both to the brain and, and the body to then bring that information forward to then further construct and fine tune other aspects of, of psychedelics that, that may come on down the track. So obviously at the forefront is improving mental health because we're in a, we're in a mental health crisis at the moment and too many people are suffering. So of course at the forefront is improving mental health. Um, but then of course there's going to be, more and more questions raised about how that can be then integrated into to other aspects of our of our experience. And so mm -hmm. what is it like to, obviously this is still a schedule one substance um, with the FDA. What's it like getting funding and, and trying to start this research, even though it is still considered an illegal substance? It's, it's better now than it used to be, uh, but it's still really cumbersome, really, really cumbersome. So we went through the process of uh, DEA approval, and we now have a Schedule 1 safe that I think is like 5,000 pounds uh, to, to have the compounds locked um, inside our research facility. Every one of these steps are new to us. Uh, and then putting in the proposals now, and you know, I want to I be super innovative and future thinking because there's so much to do and how do you integrate it with virtual reality and sensory immersion technologies and you know even like low-hanging fruit like the role of olfactory stimuli and sense during psychedelic treatments are not known at least not from you know the formal prospectively designed research study so there's just so much to do but a lot of um concern uh in terms of getting the approvals to do them. And there's numerous approvals that you need to get, at, certainly in the US and I'm sure in Australia as well, as you move through the research process, not the least of which are you know, at the federal level, but even your own institutional IRB. Uh, so we're, we're going you know, in a very, I wouldn't say it's a conservative approach, but it is a very rigorous, um, gradual uh, dipping our toe into the water of doing high dimensional multimodal bio recordings during psychedelic treatments in healthy people while manipulating their sensory environment. And the types of states that we believe are accessible are their valence, you know, the mood, their stress, the arousal, their attentional uh, focus, whether it's internal or external, 
and maybe even some aspects of their awareness. That's what we're trying to encapsulate. And we think that given the research that's been done in the clinical domain, um, de-risking these substances in well-controlled environments, like we're going to be doing our research, we will get these approvals. And so that's what we're doing now. And then in parallel to that finding funding for this, and as, as probably everyone knows, there's not a lot of funding from the government for this, which is the traditional route that we fund our research. So we are still largely beholden to generous people that are making philanthropic contributions. And that's what we're seeking right now uh, for the work that, uh, that we're getting ready to do. Mm. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's still, I mean, on, on a government level, but still on, on so many other levels, still so much backlash and, and stigma around psychedelics. And a lot of people have this idea that changing legislation around psychedelics purely means legalization, but that's not at all what we're asking for is that to, to move this into a, a more lenient schedule is to ask for or give access to researchers to, to expand on this further. And so a lot of people say like, you know, more research needs to be done before we change that. But the answer to there isn't enough research is more research. So it makes it very difficult to, to explore these substances given their, given their, um, illegality. Yeah. yeah. It, it's, it's very distressing to me as a researcher to see scientific progress encumbered by things that are pretty political and not grounded in science. Mm. And I haven't faced that all that much in my career. You know, I studied aging and attention, like there's no restrictions to that at all. So I haven't been part of this, this conversation yet because I haven't worked on anything that has had so much bureaucracy to get funded. I always had a visceral reaction to hearing about it, just being a scientist, probably like any scientist would, but now that I'm in the thick of it or entering the thick of it, it's even more troublesome because scientific research when done appropriately with IRB approval and, cons and, and consent and well-designed research in, in carefully controlled environments with safety monitoring, all the things that are our bread and butter, like we should be able to advance that more rapidly, especially in the context of the number of people in this world that are suffering debilitating conditions. Like we just have to do a lot better. And psychedelics would be one area that we can dramatically um, accelerate research by changing uh, these schedulings. I, I do think that that's an important conversation. Mm, certainly. Let's, let's um, talk about your uh, research in, in aging and Alzheimer's, because I think in terms of psychedelics um, and with these neurodegenerative illnesses and cognitive decline, psychedelics may have huge potential there. And obviously there might be different doses. And I mean, microdosing is probably becoming quite popular and, and whether that has, has merit in, in neurodegenerative illness, what, what have you been looking at there? That's a, it's, it's funny that you say that because um, I've been having a lot of conversations about that, that, exact topic over the last month and you know as as we gear up our psychedelic research program in neuroscape robin's now here uh jenny's here we have a lab we have a lot of our approvals uh we have the design for a, a new facility that we're building and you know we have a lot lot of work to do we have a lot of money to raise we have more great people to bring in 
but we're sort of at that point where I get to relax a little bit um, in terms of uh, the logistics, not that we're done, but a little bit and think creatively about what makes, what, what else am I really excited about besides what we've already been talking about. And one of those areas uh, uh, that is front and center in my mind is aging. And because that's what I've always studied. And it's real, it's almost ironic in some ways, like during this entire process of setting up uh, and helping get, you know, a psychedelic uh, division at Neuroscape launched, I never really talked or thought about aging. And now that we're over this, you know, some of the first big hurdles, it's what I'm thinking about constantly uh, because there's still an incredible need in that population, both in the clinical domain as, you know, dementia, Alzheimer's disease, other conditions that cause dementia. Um, and then, you know, the many other neurological conditions like Parkinson's and MS that don't have, have uh, cures certainly right now, but also just the healthy aging brain and the challenges that older adults face in terms of isolation and loneliness and, and rigid thinking. And of course, end of life, friends dying, them dying, like it's, there's an opportunity, I believe, for psychedelics, both on the neurological and psychiatric side, and then also on the well-being side, especially with older adults. So I've been thinking about this a lot. Uh, there's an opportunity because there's not a tremendous amount of research in older adults and psychedelics. So it's, it's a good area to carve out a niche, uh, especially given all of the work that we've and Neuroscape has done with aging. And then the last point I want to make is in terms of uh, microdosing. I have not been so interested in microdosing as a research area, not because I don't think it's important, but because what attracted me to psychedelics research in the first place was the, the big wow experience, uh, the really transformative high dose, shuffle the deck, end up different, hopefully better. That, that really captured my imagination uh, as we've been discussing. And although I think that there's something potentially interesting in microdose, and as you know, the literature is quite complicated. Some studies say yes, some say no, some say placebo. It, it just wasn't calling me until recently as I started thinking about the potential of combining a psychedelic, let's say it is a plasticity inducing even in low dose, combining it with other experiential medicines like video games, for example. Um, could it accelerate a learning curve? Uh, that is fascinating to me, even at subcognitive doses. So th there's a lot there and uh, yeah, there's a lot of great work to do. Yeah, certainly. And I mean, to counteract neurodegeneration, it, it kind of does make sense that you want to be able to access plasticity. If, you, if you're going in the reverse, I'm not sure exactly of what neurodegeneration means, whether it's a, a loss of the cells, a loss of the connections between um, the neurons themselves. But I think there is huge promise um, in exploring psychedelics for, for, that, for that use in particular. Um, but yeah, like you, like you were saying that, that big, huge dose of, of psychedelics really does reset the brain in, in many aspects. And that's obviously been most well-documented, um, in psychiatry. Uh, but yeah, certainly I think the lower doses and, and more frequent doses might have that kind of impact, still having the, the intentions for, for why you're using them, but potentially spread out across whether it's mm -hmm. multiple months or months or years long, um, I think will, will be a really interesting space. 
Mm -hmm. For sure. Very interesting and important work and could have benefits across many different populations. So that, that, that has sort of um, sparked a bit of interest in me in the microdosing world is not thinking of it in isolation, but coupled with other types of experiential approaches so that they can work together synergistically. Yeah, absolutely. Now, to, to close this conversation out, I'd, I'd like to talk to you about some of, some of this really recent studies that you're planning to, to conduct to, to open up your, your research center. What are some of the things that, that you're planning, whether you, whether you can share them or not, I'm not sure, but what, what are some things that uh, are the first step in, in opening this psychedelic research center? Well, maybe, um, you know, without too much detail, because frankly, we're, we're still working on those. One of, the, one of the first goals we have is to do some of the research that should have been done 60 years ago, to, to be perfectly blunt. Uh, we, we, the field was off to the racers, you know, races back in the 50s and 60s and there was what I believe is an entire segment of research that never got to happen because the field was shut down. And now as the field reemerges, there's obviously uh, this great focus on basic reductionist mechanistic studies, which is important, and this critical leap towards phase three trial and regulatory approvals, which I applaud and we participate in leaving open some really fundamental unanswered questions about the role of experience and context in in outcomes things that we just assume are true like music is good and there's a lot of evidence for that but what type of music and what people what about visual stimuli what about smell um, and then coupled with the physiology to really understand what's going on under the hood, that's that's the first pass for us is is just to go back to like, you know, the drawing board and say, what are the assumptions that we're making? We like everyone is making, um, you know, probably making for good reasons. These are likely to be powerful influences, not denying that, but it's not enough to believe it. Uh, we have to do just some of the basic, less exciting studies of rich environments versus non-rich environments and start showing what are the differences in outcomes and how do the individual differences manifest, just unknown. So that's a lot of our opening work is just really winding the clock back, pretending, you know, as I go through an exercise of saying, let's say we are in the 1950s and we start having this really, uh, uh, you know, vibrant burst of, of research activity showing clinical outcomes from my perspective as, you know, a, more of a cognitive neuroscientist, I'm going to be saying, oh, oh, what are, what are the ingredients and what's really the recipe that maximizes that? And, and what are the first set of studies that we would do, not the 20th, which are, you know, probably involving reward mechanisms and immersive technologies. We're going to start much more basic than that because there's a lot to be done. Yeah, perfect. Now it would be unjust if I if I didn't plant the seed in your brain, but I am actually planning to to study neuroscience. My background's actually exercise science and nutrition. And then I started looking across research and, and research papers and, and finding lots of things around psychedelics and then led me to to be more immersed in this space. Um, and now I'm really keen to, to study uh, a master's in neuroscience and eventually lead into to psychedelic research. So 
I felt the need to, I actually planned to, to go over to, to California in my undergraduate, but that, that all fell through. And so I've been looking at, you know, UCSF and, and how they're, they're doing all neuroscience and now psychedelics. It's, it's really exciting me. So I'd like to plant the seed in your brain that maybe down the track, uh, I could do some research at UCSF. Yeah, you know, we're, we're always looking for motivated, smart uh, people that have different types of skills that want to enter this field. Uh, we probably get too much incoming than we can manage right now, not the least of which because we're still really in COVID and our labs are not operating uh, near uh, the level that they, the capacity they should be. And we're still building, you know, and raising money to build new laboratories to do psychedelic work. But uh, we are really um, enthusiastic about mentorship of young uh, researchers and helping build the type of experimental design chops and and technology uh, basis that we you know both on the um, data capture and also on the analytical side that we think are, are going to be critical to move these fields forward. So. We are always looking uh, to bring in people into into our group in Neuroscape. So please reach out, and you know there may be some time delays in order for us to put some of these things in motion due to just the practicalities that are going on in the world right now. But we're certainly motivated to expand our our pool of people working with us. Yeah, perfect. Yeah, it's it's an incredibly exciting time, and and I cannot wait to see how this research unfolds and and. Hopefully soon enough, we get the, the model for psychedelic therapy to be scalable across the world and improve suffering. Um, but yeah, like, like you were saying, there is so much research that still needs to be done and will continue be, to be done over the next number of decades. But Adam, it's been a real honor to be able to, to chat with you face to face virtually. And I appreciate the time that you've taken out. And I've heard you, you're wanting to, to chat at our conference in, in November. Is that confirmed? It's, it's, uh, it's confirmed on, on both of our sides, as long as everything goes down. And, you know, I know the, the world is complicated right now, but I would love to visit Australia. Uh, I've been there many, many times giving talks and it's been too long since I've, I've been there. So yes, that, that is the plan. Perfect. Well, we look forward to having you in Australia and to speak to our community in, in this psychedelic research space. So yeah, once again, thanks so much for your time. And, and if anyone wants to, to reach out to you or investigate this type of information further, where can you direct them? Yeah, well, I have now have a, like an aggregated site of all my activities on ghazali.com. So my last name.com and this contact on there for you to reach me. And of course, neuroscape.ucsf.edu. If you just search Neuroscape, you'll find it. You could read about all of our research across the clinical neuroscience technology and now psychedelics domains. Perfect. Awesome. Adam, thank you so much. Nice talking with you. Thank you so much for listening to this episode and for your interest and enthusiasm in mental health and psychedelic therapy. Obviously, couldn't help myself but plant the seed in Adam's mind for potential research down the track for me. But if you did enjoy this episode, which I hope that you did because you've made it this far, share it with a friend, share it on social media. But the most effective way in promoting this podcast is leaving a review on whichever podcast platform you're on. Well, the best thing you can do is all of those things, but leaving a review is the best way to expose this information 
the podcasting world. Once again, I will remind you that there are ways that you can financially support the podcast. So I've linked the Patreon account to the show notes. So once again, I invite you to donate a few dollars per month. That really helps me help to create this content. And you can obviously, of course, donate directly to mindmedicineaustralia.org. Finally, the information in this episode is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended to be a substitute for the advice provided by a doctor or other healthcare professional. Patients should not use the information contained for diagnosing a health problem or disease and should consult with a doctor or other healthcare professional for medical advice or information about diagnosis and treatment. All right, we did it. Thank you very, very much. If you're still here, give yourself a pat on the back. I hope you learned something in this episode. Please ensure that you are taking care of yourself, whatever that means for you. And I'll see you here for the next one.